HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today, as we will be all fall, we are continuing our discussion looking at kind of numbers and, and the role they play in helping us understand the scale and scope of food production in our country and in our world. Off air, of course, I am the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Aaron underscore Fairbanks or follow us Heritage underscore radio. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by a regular guest of the Farm Report, David Haight, who is the uh, New York State Director of American Farmland Trust. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Aaron, it's great to be back with you. I know. I can never get enough of American Farmland Trust. <laughs> and we love Heritage Radio. <laughs> it's, it's a veritable love fest. Well, uh, it is. Today we are we're going to be um, talking about some themes that are going to be coming up at your Harvesting Opportunities Conference. It's a conference happening up in Albany, New York, a little bit later this year on November 4th. Um, I believe there are still some spaces available, and I would highly recommend you getting yours. You can find them at farmland.org. Um, but David, today I thought maybe you could kind of take us through some of the main themes that are going to be discussed at the conference and, and give us a sense of kind of what's been happening around farmland and farmland conservation since we had you last on. Great. Well, so the uh, conference, Erin, uh, is uh, a gathering of people that are coming together right at the state capitol um, to really talk about uh, big issues facing uh, food and, and local farms here in New York, uh, and, and really a diverse set of uh, topics that are going to be in the conversation. Uh, everything from how do we um, protect the land that we need to grow food uh, to how do we uh, support the next generation of farmers uh, and their pursuit to, to find a farm and find land and, and get started in New York, 
uh, to topics like uh, climate change and how they're impacting our farmers uh, and our eaters, uh, how their climate change is affecting all of us in New York. So it's a it's a very diverse set of topics, um, and we're going to have people there from uh, state governments, uh, people from local governments, from uh, conservation groups, uh, farmers, uh, food organizations. Uh, so really a, a, a great mix of people all coming together to talk about issues that are, are fun, front of mind uh, for New Yorkers. Oh, man, I am really excited. Well, before we kind of dive into some more specifics around the the kind of who and the what, I, I want to back up a little bit and, and just talk about kind of why land, uh, why land is such an important resource for us to be kind of thinking about and dedicating, um, you know, money and energy. And obviously, I know you've been working for the organization for, gosh, coming up on 15 years now. So... Why, why is land such a critical part of the agriculture and food discussion? It fundamentally, uh, Aaron, the, 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 one of the biggest challenges we face uh, as a society is you know, we need to grow more food uh, to feed more people better. And, uh, you know, if you talk, you look at like the United Nations and others, we need to almost double food production by 2050. One of our biggest challenges in doing that is 97% of the Earth's surface is not suitable for growing food. Only 3% of the Earth's surface is actually available. Uh, to, the soil is suitable for food production. You know, so much of it's covered by oceans and deserts and other conditions that really you, you can't farm on. So there's really only a small slice of the Earth's uh, surface that's available to us uh, for growing food. And tragically, uh, we have been destroying that precious soil by paving it over with concrete um, to, for new real estate developments, poorly planned developments across farms, uh, and by uh, poor farming practices. So we've been destroying that precious soil uh, by the acre, uh, by paving it over, and by the inch with how we farm on it. So by the acre and by the inch, so you mean kind of the amount of land that we're covering. And by the inch, what are, what are you talking about there? Well, when we talk about the inch, we're really just talking about how uh, farmers care for the soil. Okay. And so, you know, how they're actually, uh, the types of farming practices they're using, the intensity of those practices, and their investment in the health of the soil itself. Okay, so I mean, things that might fall into that category. I, I guess when I when I, what that brings up for me, I'm like thinking about topsoil and erosion and other kind of techniques that uh, degrade the kind of quality of the soil. Yeah, soil's a living a, a living thing. There's a lot of creatures that are actually in the soil, and so some of it's focusing on you know literally protecting the soil and its physical properties so it doesn't erode away. But there is a huge movement in this country of farmers that are 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 investing in the biological components of our soil. So they're using things like cover crops, and they're actually reducing or eliminating um, the plowing and the tillage of land to try to really 
uh, improve the organic matter in their soil uh, in part so that when we get really heavy rain or we get drought conditions that their soil is better able to either absorb big amounts of water or hold water during really dry conditions uh, and be more responsive to climate change. So that's actually for that Harvesting Opportunities Conference I mentioned, uh, we're going to have uh, a big focus of our of that conference or a series of workshops uh, really looking into those issues more deeply. Um, when we're talking about farmland, I mean, when, I, when AFT is talking about farmland, and you, you, know, you mentioned at the top of the show that you know, 3% of the kind of world's um, surface area is suitable for farming. And I wonder if maybe it makes sense to kind of focus a little bit more on New York State because um, it's, well, that's already really big for me to wrap my head around. <laughs> um, but I also know that's like definitely your area of expertise. Um, when we're talking about farmland, I also want to get a little bit clear about what kind of is and isn't included. When we're looking at those numbers and we're hearing things like X number of acres are being lost on a daily basis or a weekly basis, uh, I mean, are we talking about land that's actively in production? Are we talking about forest land? Are we talking about an land that's not in production but could be? When when you guys are um, sharing some of the kind of critical numbers for the status of, of farmland, can you help us understand a little bit more specifically like what is and isn't included in those? Sure. So New York, uh, about a quarter of all of the land in the state of New York is in farming. And that's everything from cropland, where uh, annual crops are planted, to pasture land, where there might be animals grazing, uh, to even some um, on-farm uh, woodland. Uh, it, it, so that's the kind of the base of the the land resources we have that's that's currently being farmed today. It's a lot less than a hundred years ago, um, but that's what, what's in agriculture today. Um, according to the United States Department of Agriculture, uh, since the 1980s. So, you know, over a 30-plus year period, uh, we've paved over uh, the equivalent of about 5,000 farms uh, in New York. Uh, nearly uh, 500,000 acres of farmland have been converted to developed uses. Um, so it's, it's a very real issue for New York. Um, it works out to, you know, be about two farms a week. Uh, so it's a real concern. It's particularly concentrated close to New York City. Uh, so places like uh, Long Island, uh, the Hudson Valley, uh, have really felt uh, the brunt of a lot of that um, threats to farmland. Well, that actually leads really nicely into my next question, which is when we're thinking about farmland, what I'm curious, like, what are some of the different ways we like ascertain value? Because I have to imagine that, um, like you said, you have these the Farm, farm properties and farmland in the kind of like urban fringe areas. Um, and then you have farmland that's like much further removed from, you know, urban centers. So it's under less development pressure. Um, so I, I can see those types of um, spaces really changing the, the kind of price or the way we think about the value of that land. But I feel like also on the, on the other side of that, I think about, you know, what that land can kind of produce and, and how we value and think about that. Um, especially when we're talking about different types of agriculture that require really different types of land and, and land use. Um, how do you start dividing out some of those spaces and, and looking to communicate to um, community officials and, and state officials and land trusts and individuals like myself about 
you know, where our sense of urgency should lie and, and kind of how we're making decisions uh, with all these different kind of important criteria? Well, that's that's a really big question you, you've asked, or a series of them, Aaron. I, I think there's a couple of things here. One is um, in places like the Hudson Valley or on Long Island, um, a lot of the price of farmland is driven by what non-farmers are willing to pay. And those can be people that are um, going to you know, buy a property and they'll want to develop it. Or it could be uh, somebody that maybe just wants to own a, a rural property, but they, they really don't have any intention of uh, farming it themselves. You know, the result is that one of the biggest barriers for new farmers uh, in New York uh, and other parts of this country is finding a farm um, at a price you can afford. Uh, and and that's largely because the price or the value of that land is being driven by uh, other things besides what you can make on it by farming it. And so that is a huge challenge. Uh, we have strongly supported um, the state of New York, for example, to invest in paying farmers to protect their land uh, for farming. Uh, and so our state's farmland protection program is about to celebrate its 20th anniversary on 2016. Uh, it's provided funding to now uh, permanently protect more than 250 farms uh, across New York. So that's going to make it a lot more affordable uh, for a new farmer uh, to buy one of those farms because they can't be developed and so that those rights are stripped away and so that's just one example of where state leaders can really have an impact on these issues. Do we, I mean, do we make state like policy decisions around land um, in, in other areas like this? I mean, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I am familiar with the uh, protecting land, um, uh, removing development rights from land. Is that something that happens in other ways when, when we think as like a, uh, like one of the things I was surprised to see in the lineup and, and I want to talk about a little bit is eminent domain and, and other spaces where we um, we make decisions about what we do and don't want where. I'm just wondering, is farmland like any other type of land use or building use or is it really very different from other decisions we make around how we use our physical space? Unfortunately, I, for too long, many uh, community leaders have seen farmland as a kind of simply uh, undeveloped space that is uh, kind of an interim land use until something else comes along. And that is uh, really an incorrect way to look at farmland. Uh, it is a, an asset to a community that it should be embraced just like any other community need. Um, and so as a result, uh, we have situations in the conference, as you noted, um, where we've, we've, we've had situations in New York where you know, governments are taking farmland uh, to expand for uh, roads and for uh, the expansion of new water and sewer lines or other types of public utilities. Uh, in, in part of that is because there's just not enough value uh, placed on farming and local food production uh, in New York. And so that is absolutely going to be one of the things that comes up at, at the conference. Um, I know another one of our sessions is going to focus on publicly owned land 
and the state of New York actually owns a lot of farmland. Uh, there are prisons in this state that have prison farms uh, that were shut down, uh, and some are being used for farming, but more could be, and certainly could be a place for new farmers. Uh, and there's plenty of other state land that we're aware of that could be used for farming. Uh, there just isn't enough recognition of the importance of having good land available for farmers, particularly new farmers. So kind of thinking about uh, making state land accessible for farmers, um, one of the things that, that immediately brings to mind for me is, you know, as a farmer, again, when I'm thinking about this idea of, of value of my land, value of my business, um, I feel like that's where kind of ownership plays a really critical role. I, I can't think of many business owners who are willing to invest in um, a piece of property that they don't own or don't have a sense that they're going to be able to be there long enough to recoup of us in those investments. So as a, as a farmer, if you're adding infrastructure onto the land and you're developing the soil, I mean, what do we need to think about to kind of protect those types of investments for producers who are going to be growing food in, in public spaces or in spaces where they are not owners? So that's a great uh, observation, and I think it is something uh, that we need to address head-on if you're going to have a, a, a farm leasing uh, situation. Uh, I guess, first off, farm leasing is a viable option for people. Um, it's not for everybody all the time, but it is common, and I think in the right situations uh, can actually work well, uh, particularly for new farmers that are looking uh, to get into certain types of agriculture. Um, um, that it, it can be a less costly way than sinking a lot of your limited funds uh, into actually buying land, that there might be a way to get started with a little bit less investment. Uh, but you're right, you do need to protect yourself. Uh, and so being clear about the types of improvements, if any, are needed on that land, talking with the landowner about who's going to own them after uh, your lease expires, who's going to pay for them up front, those are all really important questions to ask. There are some types of agriculture, though, certain types of field crops, hay production. There are some things that really don't require a lot of improvements. Uh, I think there's also a lot of landowners out there that are willing to help pay for uh, some of those improvements uh, themselves. So they're willing to pay for things like fencing or irrigation and other uh, assets that a farmer needs. Uh, so I think it really depends on having a, a farmer that's looking for land, really knowing what's right for them, and really having that line up well with who's going to lease them the land and, and making sure you're, you're all synced up in terms of uh, expectations and needs. Yeah, and I think it's another way that I feel like has been useful for me when, when chatting with people who don't really understand that uh, you're, you're building investment in property over time. So they're like, well, you know, you farm there and then you move your farm up the road. Like, what, you know, what's the big deal? Um, and, and, and so I think, again, it's like kind of getting back to that, that value conversation around, you know, how do we value the resources that we're putting in and that, and that knowledge, but also really thinking about the land and, and what impact farming is having on the land um, and all the different ways it impacts it. Um, kind of thinking again on this like how do we think about uh value 
across the state when there's so many different types of land and different types of agriculture production. One of the things that I think is so neat about the lineup for the conference is you have folks from, you know, the scenic Hudson Land Trust or um, the Rockland Farm Alliance or the Columbia Land Conservancy. So there's, a, you know, a multitude of different organizations that operate at a, a kind of a, a smaller than a state level. And, and can you talk a little bit about why it's important to have kind of a diversity of players in the farmland conservation conversation? Like where does AFT sit and, and, and where, how do you work with and, and where, where do you look to really support some of these more regionally focused entities? Well, so the American Farmland Trust is a national organization. I think we are, well, we're celebrating our 35th anniversary uh, this year. And I think our leadership uh, since the start of our organization has recognized that the idea of saving farmland, you know, in this country, that is a big endeavor, uh, that half the land in America is in farming. And so to, to really make it possible to help farm families and communities make better decisions about how we care for our farmland, that is a big uh, undertaking. And so we have long recognized the importance of having state-level and local-level partners um, in that effort. And here in New York, we uh, work very closely uh, with many different organizations, including local land trusts. Uh, there are about 30 in New York that really uh, focus on uh, protecting farmland uh, and they range from Long Island to Buffalo up to uh, the Canadian border, that there, there are groups like that working across the state, and they, they really play a critical role um, in, in working very specifically uh, with individual farm families and helping to uh, permanently protect their land. So there's certainly a uh, key player uh, in this. Uh, I will also say we're really excited um, by other groups. We've got some farm-to-school uh, organizations and organizations that are working on some other topics, um, as well as groups like the National Young Farmers Coalition and others that are really working on, uh, you know, helping uh, the next generation of farmers get on the land. So there's there's a diversity of partners that are a part of this. Yeah, and even some folks from New York City. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> farmers in New York City, no less. That's right. Um, you know, I think that's also like one of the things I find so interesting about um, the community garden movement here in the city. And um, as we are seeing more and more kind of rooftop farms pop up, uh, there's such interesting kind of uh, education tools in addition to the like uh, neighborhood beautification and meeting place and food they're producing. Um, it's so, I think, important for folks to have a space where they can go and engage in a real way with with growing food and like what it takes. Um, and that, that area I feel like is like super in need of support, but also, um, one of the things I love about the work that AFT does, and I think is really reflected in this conference is, you know, you guys are really helping to bridge these like upstate downstate divides and, and bringing people together across maybe less traditional, uh, groupings, because when it comes to, I think farmland production, and food, we obviously all have like a stake in the conversation. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, you know, perhaps one of the greatest examples of that is 
it, you know, the conversation we're going to have during the uh, workshops about uh, agriculture, food, and a changing climate. Uh, we're very happy that uh, Barbara Turk uh, from the mayor's office uh, in, in New York City is going to be able to join us and talk about One NYC and uh, the mayor's vision for uh, creating a resilient uh, city and how local food and agriculture uh, fit into that. Uh, we're going to have uh, 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 someone from uh, the state of California come and talk about uh, food and agriculture and farmland issues out in California and some recent research from the American Farmland Trust uh, around how farmland conservation uh, fits into uh, California's climate mitigation strategy. Uh, and we'll have upstate farmers talking about what they're dealing with uh, with the changing uh, weather and, and climate patterns. So it's, it's really people from New York City, from upstate New York, and in that case really coming from other parts of the country to be a part of this conversation. One of the things, um, you know, I'm really focusing on with the Farm Report this fall is, is trying to think about kind of the key numbers and like units of measurement um, when we think about agriculture and, and in many like kind of different spaces. And I'm wondering for American Farmland Trust, like what those key numbers are are for you here in New York State or even nationally when you want to evaluate, man, how are we doing what are the things that you kind of look at that you can really quantify in a very, like, hard and fast way? Uh, you know, that's a great question, Aaron. I think there's a few metrics that we often look at, um, and we're about to see some new ones uh, coming out uh, in, I hope, the very, very near future. Um, we, yeah, not surprisingly, look at how much farmland we're losing um, to development. And so here in New York, uh, the, the, the worst of times back in the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, we were paving over uh, about 20,000 acres of farmland a year. Um, more recently, in the early 2000s, uh, that have dropped to about 10,000 acres a year. And uh, we're, I'm very hopeful we're going to see new data come out uh, from the United States Department of Agriculture. And I think that we're going to find that, that uh, the, how much we're losing has dropped again, and that it will have dropped um, as much as 75% from where it was uh, back at the, the peak of um, back in the 1980s and early 1990s. So that's one of the metrics we look at. Um, I think another metric we're very um, keenly focused on is uh, senior farmers and that aging farmer demographic and uh, the amount of farmland. We have about 2 million acres of farmland in New York that's owned by farmers over 65. So these are farmers that are going to be leaving agriculture in the next 20 years. And so our collective success in helping them transition those farms to a next generation and not having them get lost to development, uh, that is uh, really big for us. And kind of the flip side is how many kind of young and new and beginning farmers uh, we have that are, are getting on the land in New York. That's, those are a couple of other really important metrics that we're, we're very focused on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I want to talk about one final um, set of numbers before I let you go here, which of course is, is money, is funding. Um, what are the streams that, that support the work that American Farmland Trust does? And um, you know, I know, uh, you know, myself, you know, I'm personally uh, a donor, um, and I know folks out there can and visit farmland.org and become donors themselves. But um, 
is that the primary funding stream or are there other spaces we should be um, looking for people we should be thanking for funding your work well certainly we depend very heavily on our members um, we're we are a membership organization and we really depend on people uh, that care uh, about having land for farming and growing food uh, and so we thank you Aaron uh, <laughs> and thanks to everybody that is one of our members um, I will say in terms of other metrics though and, and funding um, one of the ones that we are very excited about um, is uh, the state of New York and uh, this the 2015 we had the highest level ever in our state's history of state funding uh, for protecting farmland uh, 35 million dollars uh, that 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 none of that money comes to the American Farmland Trust but um, vast majority of that money will go to paying farmers to permanently protect their land so that is a really great news and um, again the 2016 is the 20th anniversary of our state's farmland protection program and so we're we're very hopeful that um, the state of New York is moving in the right direction and that we'll see uh, more good news uh, in next year's state budget well Fingers crossed, and, and we'll be kind of pushing from our end down here in Brooklyn. David, thank you so much for taking some time out to walk us through the conference. Really looking forward. Again, folks, if you want to find tickets, um, visit them fast, uh, farmland.org. Um, thanks, David. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, hope to see you soon, and, and really great to have you on, of course. Aaron, I love talking with you. It's always a pleasure, and I uh, look forward to seeing you sometime soon. All right, hang tight. We are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will be on board with the Escape Maker segment. Stay tuned. You're listening to Anxieties by The Landing. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Or come by Escape Maker's Yellow Tent in Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. The guide will be updated seasonally to feature farms, wineries, and destinations in New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Plus, Escape Maker will offer overnight packages to these destinations so you can get the full experience. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local farmer. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. This is Brooks Headley, the pastry chef at Del Posto in Manhattan, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we are back, uh, and it is time once again for the Escape Maker segment. 
Today we're taking a little trip up to Highland, New York. We are on the line with Becky Wilco from Wilco Orchards. Becky, welcome to the show. Thanks. So Wilco Orchards is a sixth-generation apple farm. Has it been apple farming the whole time? Um, not necessarily. It's, uh, there's actually an advertisement my dad found because um, my, my, they used to grow currants a lot, which we still have currants. You can find them at the market. But um, my dad found an advertisement in the paper. My great-great-grandfather didn't think that my great-grandfather would take over the farm, and he actually thought about selling it. So at that point, we, he saw it, and he realized how big of a current farmer and berry farmer we were at that time. And throughout the years, everyone, each generation has kind of taken their own spin on it. My dad has made it into more of a pick-your-own and a direct market farm. So, uh, you know, obviously folks here in New York City are used to seeing you guys at the New York City green markets. Um, but if we want to come up for a visit, I mean, fall is definitely like the prime time for for picking apples and for going out and like really making a day of it. And I'm wondering, you know, what are like your pro tips to have like the optimal apple picking experience? Well, there's a couple things really for us, we're a different farm than a lot of other farms. We we know you guys, like you said, from coming to the market. So you already know us. You know our family. You know my dad or my brother. Um, you get to see us every day. So really, it's your chance to kind of see us in our community. So you get to see our farm, where everything comes from. If you come on a weekday, you get to see, you know, us picking our apples, us taking the apples out, us doing what we need to do to get ready for the weekend to come to you guys. So it's a it's a great way to kind of see our farm in a in a different light than you're used to. But if you want to make a whole trip of it, I mean there's there's great bed and breakfast in the area. You can stay for the week the weekend. You can um get to see Bad Seed, which is my brother's his kind of his take on the farm. He started a hard cider company which is five minutes down the road from our farm. I would say pick pumpkins, apples, get baked goods. My aunt makes the baked goods. My other aunt makes the jams. Really just kind of celebrating how many great things we have to offer. Yeah, it's like a real family operation. So you said that, you know, each generation kind of brings their kind of own perspective and their own take. And and I know when I'm thinking about kind of family businesses, especially, you know, it's 2015, there's this like a whole explosion of kind of social media and different ways to communicate. And, and I know for farms in particular, there's this kind of constant pressure to like stay kind of in front of consumers and to stay relevant to them. I mean, how does that play into any of your work on the business? Or maybe you see like your role, that, like what you're bringing to the orchard in a totally different area. Yeah, it's it's hard because, um, you know, we're busy. So social media can be really difficult. And it's the last thing on my parents' minds. You know, they do not <laughs> think about what to put on Twitter. That just never occurs to them. Yeah, they mine think, either. <laughs> yeah, like how can we pick apples? How can we make this a good year? How can we get the best things to our customers? And it's interesting because for us, you know, we try to do social media. We we try, but mostly our way of keeping in contact with our customers is literally being in direct contact with our customers. So we're we're just a weird business model. We are not 
trying to reach new people. We are trying to, we're just by being in your community, you find us. And once people get to know us and say, my grand, you know, we have customers that their, their grandparents shop with us and that's how they know about us. Like it's a, it's a different, it's a different field. So we really get to know people by just talking directly to them and never really losing that ability to connect one-on-one with our customers instead of, you know, we don't have to find a new way. A lot of people use social media to connect, and we don't really need to find a new way to connect, though we try to keep current. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're like, you can just a- ask us in person right at the market. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, exactly. We're not hard to find. Well, that being said, I know, uh, you know, especially in the orchard industry, we're hearing a lot about um, kind of the challenges of that of that business in recent years, you know, as we have uh, more kind of extreme weather events and like changes, you know, in temperature, we hear a lot about kind of what's happening with pollinators. I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about kind of how this season has been for you guys and and how you're kind of planning and thinking about the growing um, and producing a fruit um, in the light of some of those other kind of changing things that like are on some levels like really out of your control. Well, that's, I mean, that's just being a farmer in, in that, you know, we we always have to deal with things that are not in our control. And that makes it, that makes you try really hard to control the things you can control. So we always try to bring our best produce, like I said, always be at the market to really be there to answer people's questions. Um, Try to always put our best product out there because that's that's something we can do to ensure that we are doing our best business. Um, it's it's hard, you know. This year we've had a great apple crop, which is which is amazing. We are we are picking a crazy amount of apples. It's and they all look wonderful. So that's amazing. But you know, a couple years ago there was there was that terrible late frost and we almost lost all of our peaches, um, lost all of our cherries, you know, these extreme weathers where it's staying colder for a little bit longer or getting really warm. So everything blooms and then goes back to normal, like frosting in April, which isn't unusual, but it shouldn't have, everything shouldn't have bloomed at the end of March, you know, things get a little crazy and uh, we just have to try and, do our best with what we got. But that I don't think is any different from farming forever. That's really, that's the crazy field we've chose. Those are just the ropes. That's what you're working with. Well, so, you know, um, on the farm report, um, this, this fall season, we are definitely kind of trying to think about focusing on the numbers, thinking about kind of what are kind of critical like measurements uh, and tools and how do we kind of quantify um, the work that we're doing when we think about food pr- production? So I would ask, like, for your your role and your operation, like, what are some of the kind of critical numbers or even, and and I know, like, the, the like, units of measurement for apples. I definitely think back to, like, my time working in, in at a Yupik orchard and, you know, there's a peck and there's a bushel, but... Um, I'm like, what is it? Like, what is a peck or how many bushels in a peck? Um, you know, some of those more kind of consumer facing things, but then also kind of wondering about how you guys really measure your success and what are the numbers you really keep your finger on the pulse for to know kind of how is the season going? Yeah. Um, we, 
You know, it's interesting. We a peck is a half a bushel, so a peck is ten to fifteen pounds. Where, or, or sorry, a quarter of a bushel, and a half bushel is twenty to twenty-five pounds. So a bushel is technically fifty pounds. That's how they say it, but really, with apples, you get about forty pounds per per box of bushel or bag. Um, so. Uh, when we sell at Pick Your Own, people can either pick in a half bushel bag or a peck bag. Um, and really, with Pick Your Own, how we measure success, it's really not um, about it's, it's really about what you're seeing immediately. So it's not necessarily once we count how many bushels we've sold. It's really about things that are more random, like how full our parking lot is. Like, we are right across the street from a high school. So if the high school parking lot is full of cars, that high school parking lot can hold about 300 cars, and our parking lot can hold about 70. So if we see that that's full, we know that it's a good day. Um, <laughs> I like or that. Or things like how many how many um, batches of donut batter we've made. You know, it's if. We make over 10 batches of donut batter, which uh, one batch is equal to 36 dozen donuts. So if we make over 10, we, we know it's a good day. It's something that you can kind of see immediately because when you're working and you're in the middle of it, you're not counting bushels or apples or customers. You're just seeing, like, whoa, the parking lot's full or the donut line is out of control. Like, that's what you're paying attention to, and that's kind of the – the thing that keeps you going. You see that and you're like, good, keep, let's make sure we have donuts for everybody, you know, make sure it's good. Awesome. Well, Becky, thank you much. Uh, thank you so much for taking a little time to give us a little insight. If folks want to learn more, they can definitely find you um, at www.willcoolorchards.com. But we probably recommend they go over to skatemaker.com and check out some of the great itineraries so they can get the full apple picking uh, experience. It's been great to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.